Finishing today in our last week of what we have been focusing on this month, how do I live for God? And we've talked about many different things, uh, mainly what it means to think eternally, what it means to think beyond this earth and our time on this earth. Uh, we've talked about what it means to give generously. Uh, today we come to a, a topic uh, that on the surface, this is going to be a story. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be today. And as soon as you get there, you're going to know exactly where I'm going. But I hope to throw you for a loop this morning. We're going to be talking about the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan, but we're going to dig and go a little deeper uh, than we usually do uh, and get beyond kind of surface, uh, you know, if you will, morals. This is not an Aesop's fable here where we like watch a cutesy little story take place and then we get a nice little moral story off of it, like go be nice, go love people. That's not what this story uh, really is. I'm going to start this morning and read, like I said, starting in chapter 10. Uh, verse 25 is where we're going to jump into things uh, to understand why Jesus even tells this story, because most of the time, I don't think we understand why Jesus even tells the story of the Good Samaritan, but here's why. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. By the way, boys and girls, if you ever have a point in your life where you feel like you're wanting to test Jesus, don't. It never ends well for the person trying to test Jesus. He tests Jesus by asking him this question. And by the way, this question is actually a good question. It's just asked in a really bad way with a really poor motivation. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? You can tell from the very beginning, these are big matters. This is going to be a big subject matter. And this guy seems to be seeking out pretty important things here. Jesus replies to this man. I love how he does this, by the way. It says in my Bible that this guy is an expert in religious law. In some translations, it may say that he was a lawyer. Not a, not a lawyer like we would know it, like in a civil way or a criminal way where he's defending something, but it's a guy who knows the law inside and out, backwards, forwards, everything. He knows everything there is to know about the law. And so when this man, hey, asks Jesus, what should I do if I want to inherit eternal life? Which is also very important, too, because we would think what this man is asking is, Jesus, what do I need to do to get into heaven? He's not really asking that. You see, in a Jewish mindset, in a Jewish sense, what they would ask, and this was a question that they would ask a lot in Jesus' day. The rabbis would sit around and discuss this. People would ask the rabbis, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And it wasn't, again, just pie in the sky, one day I'm going to go to heaven. It's what can I do to experience the blessings of eternal life now? And so again, it looks like a really great question. This man is a lawyer, a, an expert in the religious law, and what does Jesus do? <laughs> Jesus is, I love the way he does stuff. Well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? I mean, here, buddy, you're the, you're the expert. Shouldn't you be the one that knows how you're going to inherit eternal life? The man answered, and you can imagine if you put yourself there that day and you're watching this man, what's he doing the whole time? I know the answer to this one. I've got this one on lockdown. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind. That is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And then he responds as well, too, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.8. So he takes two scriptures 
and he sews them together. And as I was telling the Bible study group this morning, what they would often do in Jesus' day, because there were so many laws on and on, they would just, in a shorthand way, say, this is how we sum up the entire law. Love God, love others. If you can do that, and you can try to strive towards that, you're going to do a great job of fulfilling the law. And so he says that. He uses these two verses that he's probably recited thousands of times in his life. And Jesus says, this is what you want to hear from Jesus, by the way. Write. Do this and you will live. Now there's a little bit underneath that phrase right there, do this and you will live. Because Jesus understands that we're going to talk about here in a minute, there's no possible way this man can do this. There is no possible way this man can do this perfectly on his own and in his own power. And you will live. <laughs> this guy is just a knucklehead, though, isn't he, guys? Like, you were like, you should have just stopped right there. First of all, you're trying, you didn't come to Jesus with a question. His actions. Anybody in here really, really great at justifying your actions. In some translations, it actually says this man is trying to prove a point. He's trying to one-up Jesus here in this scenario. He wants to justify his actions, and so he asked Jesus, all right, that's fine, great, Jesus, you've laid all this out, but you tell me, and this is a very important question, who is my neighbor? And so this is where Jesus replies with this story, this parable, if you will. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. The guy is not in a good situation. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road, and he passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side of the road. And then, just so happens, a, and it says in my translation, a despised Samaritan. Literally, they, if you wanted to insult somebody in Jesus' day, you would call them a Samaritan. There is a point in Jesus' ministry where they look at Jesus and they say, you, Jesus, you are a Samaritan and you are possessed by a demon. That was the lowest form of an insult in Jesus' day. You are not just a Samaritan. You are a demon-possessed Samaritan. They were dogs to Jewish people. He comes along, and what does he do? When he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, two denarii is what it tells me in my notes here. And he says, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the opens up a line of credit and says, just not, not a very smart move, by the way. And the man, the expert in the law, replied, the one, couldn't even say Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do 
the same. Scholar and preacher N.T. Wright has said it this way about not just this story, but he says the best known stories, the stories with which we are most familiar in our lives, are sometimes the hardest to understand. Familiarity breeds confusion sometimes. And probably if you're like me, you have read and heard and seen acted out and seen in flannel graph the Good Samaritan more times than you can count in your life. And so I say Good Samaritan this morning, you're like, yeah, I already know where this is going. I already know what this is about. Gotta love somebody, gotta serve somebody. We, guys, we often misunderstand those stories with which we are most familiar. It's no different with the story of the Good Samaritan we find here in Luke chapter 10 that we just read. Guys, this, the story is a universally known story. It's recognized by those who are not Christians, and it's beloved by those who are Christians. I mean, you would be hard-pressed to go and find anybody if you say the words Good Samaritan. They could tell you a basic understanding of what that means, because that's built into our culture, and it's built into our lives. But again, often what happens is when this parable is read is that it's simply just taken at face value. We don't really dig very deep into it, and we interpret it in a very general and, like I said, Aesop fable kind of way, a moral sense. If you see someone who is in need, help them. Or sometimes we pull out of this, don't be prejudiced towards people. And guys, it certainly isn't less than that. That story, the story is not less than that, but it is so, so much more. And a lot of times people read the story of the Good Samaritan, they see it as a story about how to show random acts of kindness to people and to practice social justice. No. No, it's not. Are those things in there? Are these things in this story about compassion and love and kindness and being a neighbor and fighting for people who are helpless and hopeless? For certain, it's in there, but it is not the point of this story. If you think that it is, and it's about social justice and being kind to people, you're going to miss something deeper in this story. And this understanding begins by seeing that all parables, of which Luke 10 is a kind of parable. Now, I was talking about this in Bible study. There is considerable debate about this chapter, Luke 10, and this story, as to whether it is a parable or it is not a parable. In most English Bibles, it's titled, and we kind of did this in Bible study this morning, but my Bible, it does say in my Bible, the parable of the good Samaritan. But it's important to admit that it's never actually by Jesus called a parable. It's a story, he says. And it's just as likely that this may have been a real event that precipitated the story that Jesus tells here in Luke 10. But here is the really great truth. Whether it's a parable or whether it's not a parable, parables are, by definition and by practice in Jesus' ministry, stories of salvation. I challenge you, go, go look up any parable of Jesus and read it, and what's at the heart of every one of those stories and every one of those parables is salvation. That's what it's about. It's not about some light little meaning, but salvation, eternal. What do you think is at the heart of this story in Luke chapter 10? Salvation. It's all about that. Again, not about love, 
not about compassion, not about kindness, not about justice. It's about salvation. But maybe, guys, not in the way that you would naturally think. And so, guys, I think it would do us well to dig this morning beneath the surface of this story and see what's going on at the heart of this story of the Good Samaritan and what it has to do with salvation and the gospel. Guys, everything should always point back to salvation and the gospel. And this story does that very, very well. And what I want to do is I want to set up this story a little bit for you this morning, uh, both geographically and then contextually. And the reason that I say this could very well be an actual story that did happen, it's not just made up, that, it, this, that there was a story that involved real life and real people and real places, it, is that this road that Jesus describes from Jerusalem to Jericho did very well exist, and it exists today. If you went over to Israel, you could walk this road from Jerusalem to Jericho that this story is told about. This road that Jesus begins to talk about is actually referred to for the first time in Joshua chapter 18, and it's known as Adumim. That's the name of the road that these men are walking and that many people walked in Jesus' day. It was often referred to as the ascent of Adumim or the ascent of red places. And I think maybe there's another picture after this one that gives you a little bit better sense of this road. It's a winding road. Uh, the rock around this place is very, very noticeably red. A more sinister name for this road, or at least a stretch of this road, was get this the Pass of Blood. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going on a road that's called the path of I, I don't know about you, but that's how I see it when I see this road. This road, the path or the ascent of Adumim was a 17-mile stretch of road. And again, you can see this is just one part of it, but it is that windy. And actually, this is a more modern picture, and I think it's been kind of made less windy, but it was super snake-like in Jesus' day. It was a 3,000-foot drop from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and so you were walking, if you were coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, you were walking down 3,000 feet, or if you were coming from Jericho to Jerusalem, you were climbing this thing the whole time. And it was well known in Jesus' day as a place where thieves and bandits and robbers stalked people. They just waited for people. It was perfectly, perfectly tailor-made for this. And what's very interesting, and I just love this about God's Word, of how everything just weaves together, along this road, this ascent of Adumim, there was a valley that ran along this path. And do you know what the name of that valley was? It's going to sound very familiar when I say it. It was called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Where do we hear that? Yes, the very same Valley of the Shadow of Death that we hear about in Psalm 23. See, guys, that's why I'm convinced that the Bible is not just made up stories. Because we first run into the Valley of the Shadow of Death back in the book of Psalms, in the time of David and around that. And that very same valley was there as these people walked this path from Jerusalem to Jericho in Jesus' day. 
And again, as the story goes here in Luke chapter 10, this poor man that finds himself on this path becomes the latest victim of the highwaymen and the bandits on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. This Jewish man is left beaten and half dead, and those passing by could not tell. This is how badly beaten he was. Is that guy dead or is he alive? I can't really tell. That's how bad a shape he is in. Which is really important as it do with these religious officials. What does it say here? It says a priest and a Levite come by and not wanting to contract impurity by touching or even coming close to a potential dead body, a corpse. That was a no-no in Jewish land. You don't touch a dead body. You don't get close to a dead body. But by the way, bonus information, that was true of the law. But what superseded the law was that if you were coming to the rescue of somebody who could potentially be dead or there was a corpse, that superseded the, the law to not touch a dead body. So let's not let these guys like weasel out of what happens here. They don't want to become impure. They don't want to become unclean. And so it was just easier to remain aloof. And what does it say that they do? They see this man, but they do what? They go to the other side of the road. They just pass by on the other side of the road. Now I told the Bible study group this morning that usually what we do with these two guys is we set them up as straw men and we're like, Ooh, I mean, this priest and Levite, come on, guys, really? Who just walks by on the other side of the road when they see somebody in need? Do you know who does that? And so we can't just say, ooh, bad priest and Levite. They passed by on the other side of the road, and what they were so concerned with, preserving their purity, came at the cost of being obedient to God's greater law of love. They were forgetting all about love and all about grace. And the interaction that these three men, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, have with this man on the side of the road sets the stage for what I want to focus on early and often in the sermon this morning. So here's my observation as I look at this story and I just try to break it down in my mind is that first and foremost, we have this priest. And this priest, I would describe, operates very much out of what I would call ceremony. He was more concerned with the, the optics of who he was and what God had called him to be that I, I don't need to associate with this because I will make myself unclean. It'll make me dirty. It'll make me messy. It'll get all over me. He was more concerned with that. He was more concerned with the optics of that than he was the overall force of the law. And he neglected a greater call. Grace, mercy, and love. You see, guys, it, it would have been assumed that in this heroin by, and again, if you just imagine Jesus talking to a largely Jewish audience, we're like, we got a Jewish man, and he's on the side of the road, and he's helpless. But here comes the priest, and everybody would be like, yeah, he will make everything right. He will be the one to do what is right. Everybody would say, now he's going to be okay. But that's not how things turn out, do they, in this story? Instead, it says, and Jesus tells us, and he tells in this story, that this man crossed to the other side of the road and he just simply passed him by. Didn't even give it a second thought. And so comes the next person into the story to happen upon 
this poor, helpless man, a Levite. He's a temple assistant. He helps the priest in his duties, but it's a lot of the same reaction, isn't it? It's a lot of the same inaction, isn't it? He walks over and he looks at him, but he too passes by on the other side of the road. And I have to admit, as we read the story here, there's a little bit more effort from this Levite, isn't there? But there still isn't really any help given. Whereas a priest operates out of what I would call ceremony, this temple assistant, this Levite, operates partly out of concern. It says he does see the man, he does walk over to the man, but then he decides, no, and he walks to the other side of the road. I think this Levite is what I would describe, and again, by the way, guys, I think all of these are ways that sometimes we operate in our lives too. This Levite operates out of what I would call convenience. I don't have time for this. I don't have time to be bogged down by this. I got, I got, I got things to do. I got to, e- either this man was making his way from Jericho to Jerusalem to serve his duty in the temple, but he says, he says I've got, I got to get there. I've got to clock in. I've got, to, I've got to make sure that I'm not defiled. Or he was coming from Jerusalem back down to Jericho. And remember, when you went to serve in the temple, you stayed there for a, a long period of time. So this man's been away from his family. And he says, I got to get home to my, my family. Got to take care of things at home. I got I got honeydew list projects at home that I need to take care of. This will inconvenience me. And maybe for these two religious guys, it was just too dangerous. It was just too time consuming. It was just too messy. And regardless, for as for as pious and righteous as these men appear and seem to be, they pass by on the other side of the road to avoid serving this man who is in obvious desperate need. And then comes, as it says in my Bible here, the despised Samaritan. They pass by on the other side of the road. This guy doesn't. I, I don't think, guys, we fully understand and catch what a shocker this plot twist would have been in first century Israel. A Samaritan? Like, I thought the priest and the Levite were going to be heroes. A Samaritan is the guy that you're going to lift up as the hero of this story? And doesn't it seem to you, it seems to me that Jesus goes to extra great lengths to show just how active and to what level this despised Samaritan was willing to go, no matter how great the cost, to serve and to save this poor man on the side of the road. Jesus seems to be doing that very specifically. Again, listen to the wording that Jesus uses. He tells this story. He says, this Samaritan sees the man. He feels deep compassion and pity for him. He goes to him. He bandages him. He pours oil and wine on his wound. He puts him on his donkey. He carries him to an inn. He takes care of him at the end. And he even, what he does essentially when he says, here are two coins for if anything else comes up. He prepays two months worth of lodging, food, and clothing, and whatever basic needs arise. There was a sign found uh, as they did some archaeological digs of what it cost for a night at a roadside inn in Jesus' day, and the sign said on there that it was one thirty-second of a denarius. This guy gives two denarii, so again, I'm not a mathematician, but you do the math on that. This guy prepays over two months' worth of care for this guy. 
He even goes to the trouble of leaving extra money. He sets up this line of credit in case he incurs unexpected and even unlikely costs. Guys, this man, this despised Samaritan that we would, that in Jesus' day would have been booed and jeered in this situation, he is willing to do what nobody else was willing to do. He was willing to pay the price so that this man would be spared any cost or any burden. And unlike the other two who operate out of ceremony and out of convenience, this Samaritan, this utterly despised dog Samaritan, the last guy that you'd cast as a hero in a Jewish drama, he acts wholeheartedly out of compassion. He has compassion on this man. The Samaritan takes an extraordinary degree of risk, an enormous amount of cost to help this stranger. And not just a stranger, guys. This is public enemy number one to the Samaritan. He risks getting jumped by the same bandits when he stoops to see what has happened to this man. He risks being cheated by the innkeeper. Again, I said, that's not a very smart move to say to an innkeeper, oh, by the way, just start a tab for me, and then anything that he needs, just put it on that tab. Innkeepers were not wholesome guys back in that day. They were trying to get all the money that they could. And so when you tell a guy who's trying to get all the money that he can to say, you know what, whatever unlimited, lavish, whatever he needs, give it to him. You have to know that potentially that innkeeper is going, (laughs) okay, got you, thank you. Open line of credit. He risks being saddled by the expense and the emotional weight of caring for someone who has become chronically ill, who has found a bad spot in life. Guys, he takes on these risks. And this is so very key. This is why this line, to love your neighbor as yourself, is stuck in here. He takes on these risks, these costs, because this Samaritan acts as if his own life were the one in question. He has a way of saying, you know what, what if I were the one who were in that situation right there? What would I want somebody to do for me? That's what I will do for this person. It's a unique way to look at things, and in a way, honestly, that most people do not look at situations. And I think, guys, when we look at this story, and many people would look at this story, and they would say, this is whacked out. This seems like a fairy tale. This seems so silly. Who does this? Who would go to all of this cost and this risk, again, for someone that they don't even like? Who is their enemy? This is silly. No, my friends, this is not silly. It is not weird. It is not unusual. This is the kingdom of God. This should be the norm in the kingdom of God. I think many people may read this story and they lost the opportunity to steward what had been do that. 
factors that surround this story, let's take some time to look at the context of this story to understand it greater. The story within the story, if you will. And I think what's often missed and easily missed is that this Good Samaritan story, again, is prompted by an encounter that Jesus has with a religious scholar, and I want to read it again. Just verses 25 through 29. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. This is the question that is at the heart of this entire section. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answers, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Good, Jesus says. Do this and you will live. You will have life. And then again, what precipitates all that story, the man wanted to one-up Jesus to justify his actions, and so he asked, well, fine, who is my neighbor. Guys, discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, whatever you want to call it, I would call it simply, what does it mean to live for God? The level of relationship that you have with God, your Father, is one of Luke's most important themes in this gospel. Jesus' encounter with this lawyer, this expert in religious law, reveals how Jesus does. God does not allow distinctions to be made in the basic treatment of people. Someone has said it this way, there are no easy escapes for failing to serve and to be a neighbor. We don't just get to weasel out of that and be like, well, I mean, I didn't do it because of this. No, there is no escape from being a neighbor to someone else. This man asks this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Again, that sets the tone for what's about to transpire in this entire story. In the rest of this passage to verse 37, it's all about eternal things, eternal life, salvation. This lawyer comes to Jesus and he, again, bad motivation, he is trying to trap Jesus with the law. But what does Jesus do? You notice, right? He sends him back to the law. He goes, all right, bucko, you want to follow the law and you think that the law is going to save you, so you tell me what the law says that's going to save you. And he doesn't send him back to the law because the law perfects, but the law has always and only ever will be good at pointing out that we need saving. You understand that, right? I've said that many times. There's nothing bad with the law. The law has a purpose, but the purpose is for the law to be a mirror that stands in front of us and says, here are all of your imperfections. Here you need to know that you are lost. That's what the law is about, and that's what Jesus is trying to get this man to do. To point out that we need, that he needed saving. And instead of being justified by appealing to and falling before the mercy of God, this man tries to do what so many people in this world do, justify themselves. Oh, I can can tell you, Jesus, I can tell you why I didn't do that. 
And guys, in the end, this is not so much a story about loving those we hate, but showing sacrificial love towards those who are hateful and unkind toward us. I want you to hear that again. The story at the heart of it is not even really about us. It's about us showing love to those who are hateful and unkind toward us. Guys, there is absolutely no logical reason for this Samaritan to go to the lengths that he does, but I want you to notice this, and I want you to note this and tuck it away. True mercy does not need reasons or logic to act. It just needs an opportunity. Guys, this story has opportunity all over. There's opportunity for any of these men to step into this situation and say, I will help this man. But only one does it. Somebody has said it this way. Neighborliness comes in all shapes and sizes and levels of cost. And it is only limited by our failure to see and to feel and to respond. Guys, how do we live for God? That is our question we've been asking all month. How do we live for God? As it has to do with Luke 10 here, we show up as neighbors. Now listen to this. This is an important word. Looking for opportunities to show mercy. We don't just wait in life for, uh, for like an opportunity to just show up and like, well, maybe somebody will need my help today. No, we go, we go looking for it. We actively search it and seek it out and we look for an opportunity to show mercy. Sometimes in very small ways and sometimes in very large ways, but it doesn't make any of them any less significant. But this is where I want to flip this story on its head a bit because typically when we come to the Good Samaritan, like I said, we just walk away with a very basic message of love your neighbor, be kind, show compassion. And that's true, right? We should do that. But there is so much more here than meets the eye. You, you see, Jesus says what he does, and he approaches this man in the way that he does to get him to realize, as we should realize, again, this isn't just about some unknown man, it's about us, to get every person to realize that while loving God and loving people should always be the ambition of our hearts, if our eternal life hinges on how perfectly you and I love God and love people, you understand something, don't you? We are doomed. There is no hope for us. If we are hoping, you know what, I'm just going to follow the law. I'm going to follow this basic law. Love God, love people. That sounds really good, doesn't it? But if that is what we're relying on for our eternal life, we are in a very, very sad state. And that's what Jesus does here. What Jesus is really saying here as he's talking to this man is he's saying, okay, buddy, I hear you. Love God, love people. That sounds really good, but can you go ahead and do that and give it a try? That's what he's basically saying to this guy. It's basically what he's saying to us. Because if you can do that, bucko, you have eternal life. And you see what this does. You see what Jesus is doing, don't you? He is exposing this man's heart to make him aware of the fact that he cannot live up to the standard of the commandments that he just quoted. He cannot live up to the standard of the law. 
Guys, have you ever in your life, even in your own life, can any of you genuinely say, because I know that I can't, can any of you genuinely say, you know what, even, I'll just, I'll do it this way, one day out of your life, I have perfectly loved God today. And certainly, have you ever been able to say, I have perfectly loved every single person around me for just one, let's not even go a day, an hour out of the day. I perfectly loved you, God. You might be able to stretch and be like, you know what, I had that one stretch one time where like for an hour I was on fire. Nobody. Nobody who has ever been, who is now, or whoever will be, will be able to say, you know what, I have perfectly loved God and love people around me. One scholar said it this way, the just person, the merciful person in the Old Testament is one who sees his or her resources as belonging to the whole community, a gift that they have been given to steward for the benefit of the whole community. And in Jesus' day, Jews thought that they were only socially, materially, physically obligated to help who? fellow Jews. Those people who were like them, who thought like them, who looked like them. This was their idea. And as Jesus is talking to this audience and this religious scholar here, this is what they're thinking. Their idea of who a neighbor was, was my fellow Jew. And Jesus is about to blow that out of the water. So far out of the water. You, you see what's happening in the story, don't you, right? That Jesus is this whole time backing this guy into a corner. And the squeeze of this commandment to love God and to love others perfectly. And so what he tries to do is he tries to limit the scope so that he can achieve it in his own power and his own effort. Oh yes, Jesus, I can love God and I can love others. Perfectly, can you, Jesus says? which is really the answer to the question that we've been asking over and over and over again for the last four weeks. How do I live for God? And here is my short answer, and it's going to seem sort of depressing. It's actually impossible to live for God. It's actually impossible to live for God if you're trying to do it in your own power and emotions and will. Guys, understand, we can only live for God as we are living in Christ and by the power of God's Spirit. Guys, we cannot earn anything from God, and because of that sobering truth, here's what the gospel really is. The perfect life, guys, that's the joyous news of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I love this line so much. Let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us. We can never, ever... give you the resources to love him and to love people in a much better way. You cannot do it apart from his life in you. And guys, because you cannot love like Jesus when you love Jesus, because you have him in your life, 
He gives your heart an ability, a supernatural ability and capacity to love people that you would normally not get along with. And I, I know that as I've been talking about this, and I talk about public enemy number one, a person that you despise and hate, every single one of you probably, an image popped in your mind, didn't it? That person. You're like, that, that one. That's the one I'm talking about. And you think, how in the world? Ryan, you're telling me to love that person, that person that did these unspeakable, horrible things to me? It's what Jesus says, not what Ryan says. How do we do that? You can't. But Jesus can. And he allows you to supernaturally love in ways and in situations and people that you normally would not. And that's why I would say it this way, guys. The only way that you're ever going to love people, your neighbor around you rightly, is to love Jesus first and foremost. Did you hear that? The order is very important. If you cannot love Jesus rightly and firstly, you're never going to love the people around you very well. If we could, guys, love perfectly, we would be perfect. But since we aren't, and we can't love perfectly, it necessitates a perfect, sacrificial Savior. You see, it always comes back to Jesus. It always comes back to the story. Guys, the heart of this story is not good deeds or compassion or love. The main thrust of this story is that we are deficient when it comes to saving ourselves, but thank goodness we have a perfect, loving, full-of-sacrifice Savior. Guys, this changes everything about what we internalize and apply from this powerful story of the Good Samaritan. See, the call at the end of the scene is not that we, would, we need to just ride in on our white horses and rescue everything. We need to rescue the poor and huddled masses. But guys, the point of the story and the thrust of the story is that we need to be rescued. We not somebody else, not a world. There is massive need in this world, but first and foremost, we need to understand that we need to be rescued from our poverty, our insecurities, our bent thinking and actions. And when we know that we have been rescued from that, it frees us and it opens us up to serve sacrificially. See, I think we always want to jump to, like, what can I do? Where can I jump in? i got to do something. i gotta, I got to help somebody. No, 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 no. You need to understand what's been sacrificed on your behalf, and then you can serve sacrificially. Guys, you, you won't radically neighbor in life until you recognize that you have been radically neighbored. Until you see yourself in the situation of a vulnerable, helpless, hopeless individual. That's the position that Jesus puts this lawyer in. And guess what? It's the position that we have all found ourselves in. And sometimes many people still find themselves in this position. Until we are rescued by He who was once our enemy. Romans chapter 5 Verse 8 says it very well. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while what? We were still sinners. We were public enemy number one. We were so far away from God that he was as to an enemy to us. 
Guys, Jesus is way more than just a good Samaritan. He is the greatest Samaritan that we'll ever know. And I think what happens in the story and the call in this story is not so much. You understand how Jesus does this, right? The question at the very beginning is, okay, then Jesus, you show me who is my neighbor. And what does Jesus do by the end? He flips it and he does this. Verse 36, who would you say was a neighbor to the man who was in need? So the question, guys, is we don't look necessarily for who your neighbor is, but the call is just be a neighbor. Be a neighbor in the way that God has already neighbored you and I. Neighbor those who are most in need of mercy. Haddon Robinson says it this way, a neighbor is someone whose needs you have the ability to meet. Again, the question, guys, is not who's my neighbor. It doesn't quite rise to the level of importance found in the question that Jesus gives, which is to whom am I going to be a neighbor? Guys, let the neighbor be you. You be the neighbor. Rather than worrying if someone else is a neighbor or being neighborly, Jesus' call is for us to take the first step in being a neighbor to those who have need of being served. Who should you be a neighbor to? Well, I would say whoever's around you who has need, who needs mercy, who needs grace. And sometimes, guys, it means people that you don't like. Oh, my. See, this isn't some cutesy story. This is really hard, challenging stuff. It's to regard their needs as more important than your own and to be willing to do whatever it takes to lift them up, to ease their burden, even if that comes to great. Oh, they should have known better or somebody else will take care of this does not relieve us of the greatest responsibility to God and His calling in our lives. There's actually a law in our country, and it's called the Good Samaritan Law. We know this. It's how we know about the Good Samaritan, because it's acted out in our country a million times over. And it varies from place to place, but basically the Good Samaritan Law is to protect you in the event that you render aid or assistance to a stranger and some other inconvenience or injury is incurred to that person. It protects you. Fun fact, there's also in eight states in the United States a law by the same name, the Good Samaritan Law, with a different meaning, stating that you are required by law to give aid to someone who needs help, and if you do not give aid to them, you will be held criminally liable for not rendering aid. I know what happens, guys. Oftentimes we get so overwhelmed, don't we? There's so much need out there. We don't know where to start. But as we stew on that, it just quickly becomes inaction. Well, it's so overwhelming that I'm just not going to do anything. And guys, maybe we can't help everyone and everywhere, but we can help somewhere and we can help someone. We can try to meaningly and sacrificially serve. And this sometimes involves great levels of sacrifice, but such is the life of a disciple. Such is the cost of obedience. What does Jesus say? In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, 
He says to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, to be my disciple, you must give up your own way. You take up your cross daily. Follow me. That's what Jesus says. That's the call. That's the cost. That's what we live up to. So here's the call, guys, very simply stated this morning. Show up, see the need, and step up. The faith that lives is a faith that reveals itself in service to other people. Guys, the Christian life is by nature a life of sacrifice, and yet many Christians supposedly who come to Christ remain dedicated to a life lived just for themselves. Is Jesus worshipped, this is the way I would ask it, is Jesus worshipped in your life in a to-die-for way? Do you serve God until it hurts, or do you serve Him to the point where it fits neatly into your schedule? Are you fearful of overdoing it? Oh, I don't want to do too much. Or do you live your life in a demonstration of sacrifice? Guys, never ever in your life think that one bit of mercy that you show to someone, even the smallest iota of mercy is ever wasted. God will see it, and he will ensure that no loving act done in his name will ever be lost. This is a story with eternal impact and implications, but very practical applications as well, too. So as Jesus says here, at the end of the story, go and do the same. Love boldly, serve sacrificially. And here's the postscript. Because I don't want to leave it there, because again, if I leave it there, everybody will be walking away and be like, you know what, I know what I need to do. just need to love. Just love, love, love. Guys, so much of this story is about examining our own level of lostness. Even when we think that we are found. It's all about lavish love by a person for somebody who is a nobody. An enemy that he didn't even know. And it causes us to think. You read this story and you should read this story and you should think to yourself, Gee, you know what? I don't know that I have ever loved anybody like that. Not even the people who are closest to me. Guys, we hardly love those who we would see as our neighbor, who are just like us, who think like us, who act like us, let alone our hated enemies. We only love ourselves like that. And therein lies the point. That is the thorn in our hearts. And guys, we don't understand the kingdom. We don't understand and experience true eternal life until we understand how to love perfectly and rightly and lavishly. And this sums up everything for this morning. We can't love like that. The model that Jesus steps, uh, sets up in the story, we cannot do that. We need mercy. We need forgiveness. We need grace. And until we understand that, my friends, until someone understands that in life, they are utterly and hopelessly lost. But there's Jesus in the story. There's Jesus in Luke 10. There's Jesus in all of the Gospels. There's Jesus in all of his ministry 
becoming the personification of heavenly mercy and forgiveness, ready to give it lavishly and boldly. You see, the story here, and what I try to do this morning, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about not giving money to poor people. It's not to make you feel guilty about not taking care of those who are suffering. It's not what I'm here to do this morning. It's not what Jesus' point is in this story. We should be doing those things. We should be loving lavishly and boldly and helping people who are suffering. Guys, the story is about us feeling not guilty, but repentant for not loving God perfectly and not loving others rightly as a result of that. And in that, running into the arms of the only one who can provide forgiveness and mercy and eternal life that will never, ever end. And so that's my call this morning. I know that I usually talk to a room full of people who are like, cool dude, I'm there, I have Jesus, what else do I need? What you really need is you really need to dig deep into your life and you need to see in the depths of your hearts, just like God does, to see if there's any level of what I would term lostness. Any bent thinking, any bent actions in your life. And what you need to do is you need to run. Turn around. I change my mind. I no longer want to act or think like this. And then perhaps for somebody here in this room this morning, they need to, for the very first time in their life, run towards Jesus. Understand for the very first time just how lost they are apart from Jesus. That you, my friend, are the man on the side of the road left there beaten and half dead. You don't have to stay there. There is one who has come to rescue. He has already done that on a cross. That you would come this morning and you would give your life, you would dedicate your life, you would commit and devote your life to the only person who is able to carry the weight and the burden that you try to carry in your own life. Friends, do not try to live by the law. We live our lives by the grace and love that has been shown to us and we extend that to others. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, humbly ask. I can only ask this for myself, but I, I plead and hope that every person in here would be willing to ask the very same thing, that, Lord, in my life, you would allow me to see deep within my own heart and not for me to look within myself for something, but, Lord, to look in my heart and to see what there may be in there that is causing me to be separated from you, to be lost and apart from you. And that for all of us, Lord, we would be able to come to you and we would be able to throw ourselves on your lavish, reckless grace and love. It seems so, so crazy. It seems so weird and wild to do what you have done for us, that when we were at our worst, you were at your best. And so I pray, Lord, that we would see in this story exactly that. That while there are a lot of noble, virtuous things to look at in this story and a call for us to be a neighbor to those around us, that's there. But over and above that is the truth that you, God, found us when we were lost. 
when we are utterly hopeless. And for that, we thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.